Jonah chapter 3, and once more we begin here at verse 1. Hear again the word of our God. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose, and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing this evening. As we come to our final evening, in this third chapter of Jonah's prophecy, I think it's quite fitting that I set before you a basic theme, or even perhaps more accurately, a very simple idea. Familiarity often does breed contempt. And certainly when we come to a familiar text of Scripture, we find that temptation, don't we? Jonah is a book that we know. We know its narrative We know even the various verses that convey the history to us, but the danger is always that this book becomes line upon line, word upon word, and we become a people really inoculated to the power of this text. And I want you to know that immediately as we look at a prophecy like this, any text of Scripture that is so familiar to us, the flesh will tell you that the only reason you should hear this again is if you can find something new or something interesting as though the obvious and plain reading of the text is not profound enough. Friend, we must always resist that as we come to a passage like we do this evening. But even as we come to this text, familiar as it is to us, it's important to understand that familiarity often also communicates to us this false sense of of a kind of total knowledge of the text, as though there was not great depth in the text before us. And certainly that also has to be avoided. Every part of the book of God is a deep thing. Every part of the scripture is a deep that I dare say for an eternity, God's people will be plunging its depths and still finding it a deep, not fathomable. And so with those remarks before us, let me remind you that as we come to the end of this chapter, we really come to the end of a third example of repentance. We come to the end of that example of repentance that sets before us Nineveh, a dolorous city, an ash-covered city, a a sackcloth-cladded city. 
And we come to this 10th verse and we find that this city that had once been proclaimed nearly on the cusp of extermination is spared. She continues. She's delivered. And so that's how often we take this 10th verse. This communicates to us simply, Nineveh is spared. In fact, I would encourage you to look at this 10th verse just a bit more closely. The narrator could have said very simply, and Nineveh was spared. But that's not what the inspired historian tells us. Instead, he takes our focus largely away from the city itself. In fact, he takes our focus so much away from the city that we don't even really think about the prophet Jonah. I want you to notice how the narrator brings this conclusion to us. Notice the subject. And God saw. The prophet sets before us not Nineveh, but Jehovah. In fact, this is really the 10th verse. Our focus is fixed almost exclusively, entirely on the Lord. I want you to notice how it does this. The prophet tells us what God does. God saw. He tells us what he sees. Their works that they turn from their evil way. It tells us what God has determined. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And then it tells us what God actually does. And he did it not. The focus is preeminently not on Nineveh, but on the cause of Nineveh's deliverance. The prophet takes us as the inspired penman away from our terrestrial gaze, away from the city itself, fixes us in the court of heaven, and tells us why this city continues. And friend, we lose much if we fail to see this. Our focus is preeminently on the Lord, not even on those who are delivered. But even within that, friend, I want you to notice that the prophet sets before us a very particular emphasis that again we could quickly lose sight of. It's that emphasis that you find really in the middle of this verse. And God repented. Now friend, first of all, I want you to notice that that is emphasized in this 10th verse, both because causally this is the foundation of Nineveh's deliverance, and also because of the power behind the word itself. Take, take the causal aspect first of all. If we have only the first line of this 10th verse, we are left without any explanation as to why Nineveh continues. All that we are, all the, all that we are told is that our omniscient God sees Nineveh turning away from their evil. But what you have in this phrase, and God repented, is the link that explains for us why in the 10th verse, Nineveh is spared, not destroyed. I want you to understand, friend, that before we go any further, before we understand how we look at this text, this word sets before us the principal reason that Nineveh continues. But then secondly, friend, I also want you to notice that the word itself is emphatic. And this is something that's communicated very clearly to us, isn't it? Even English speakers. The word repent is a word that is laden, not just with this idea of changing one's mind. Yes, etymologically it has that at root, but it is a word that is necessarily laden all throughout the scriptures with very affectionate undertones. The narrator could have simply said that God had changed his mind. There are words for that in the Hebrew language. He picks a word that emphasizes something that is deep. 
And a word, friend, that's striking for a number of reasons. Applied to God, we're immediately confronted with a number of difficulties. Let me just set before you some of them. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. It's the same word in our text. The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. He is not a man that he should repent. Again, the same word. And God is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, friend, as we look at this text, we're obviously confronted with the question, how can we then speak at all, as we do in the 10th verse of our chapter, about God repenting, when the three verses that I've just set before you set very clearly before us a definite negation. God does not do this. In his essence, in his being, God is incapable of repenting, incapable of change. How do we understand this? Well, friend, holding all of these texts together, we understand that, of course, in this 10th verse, our text, the inspired penman is setting before us language accommodated to our own human capacities. There is no change in our unchangeable God. There is no variableness in his disposition. He remains immutable and simple God. No components, no passions. But what the narrator is setting before us, as he is heaven's penman, he sets before us the idea that there appears to be, there is perceivably an external alteration in God's dealings. If you will, an alteration in the trajectory of providence. And so this language comes to us to help us understand what is going on at this juncture in the narrative. It appears as though things have changed quite radically. Certainly, as we move on this evening, we'll spend a lot more time on that theme. But suffice it to say at this stage, this is language of accommodation, not allowing at all any changeability in God. Now, if we hold all of these themes together, friend, what you have here is, again, the conclusion of example. But, but as we come to the end of this example, the example is not of Nineveh's repentance. We cannot miss this. The example is not of Nineveh itself. We've already received, really, about six verses devoted to that subject. The 10th verse is not an example of Nineveh's repentance. It is an example of Nineveh's deliverance. It's an example of Nineveh's deliverance. And I want you to note, friend, that we've encountered this time and again. The 17th verse of chapter 1, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, to spare the errant prophet from death. The 10th verse of chapter 2, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Now the very last verse of the third chapter, again we have the Lord working deliverance. And all of these things are providing for us examples of God demonstrating his mercy, free grace to sinners who now seek his face. That's the example of our text. And so what does the text teach us? Well, it teaches us very plainly that the Lord is indeed disposed to show great mercy to great penitent sinners. The Lord is disposed to show mercy to great penitent sinners. And I want us to consider that this evening under three headings. I want us to to consider the instrument of mercy, the intention of mercy, and lastly, mercy's intervention. And so take take first of all the instrument. 
As you look at the 10th verse, you have very clearly a, word, a, a phrase that friends should strike us, almost with trembling. And God saw their works. If we are astute readers of the word of God, this is a phrase that is genuinely striking. Let me give you just a few examples. Take Genesis 6. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Take Genesis 18, speaking of Sodom. I will go down now, says the Lord, and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. Or even take Babel. The Lord came down to see the city. Here you have language, accommodated language, of God coming down and inspecting men. And strikingly, every time in the scriptures prior to our text, when God comes down to inspect people, it is always a harbinger of judgment. It always portends that God is going to visit in his wrath. And so on bated breath, friend, we should leave this phrase. And God saw their works. What works had Nineveh performed in the past? What great vileness could you find in that city? How heinous could you see these people become as they continued to rebel against the light of nature? As they continued to rebel against their creator and suppress the truth and unrighteousness? What works of iniquity could God find in Nineveh? That great and that evil city. And yet in this 10th verse you have the words. God saw their works. What's striking is, as you even look at the very first chapter of our text, note how similar it is to those other passages that I read to you. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. It's the very selfsame language that God uses when he speaks of Sodom. And now we're told in the 10th verse of chapter 3, and God saw their works. What, which works will be seen? The text tells us that they turn from their evil way. This does not strike us like it should because we are so, so inoculated to the power of this text. God comes down. He visits this evil city. And what does he take note of? Not the vileness that he could find in her past. Not even the present, even prevailing, indwelling corruption he could see in her. But the text simply says that he saw that they turned from their evil way. As the text takes us to the court of heaven, here is what heaven notes. Here is what Jehovah sees. He takes note only of those fruits of genuine repentance that he finds here. It's a striking thing, isn't it, friend? What does this teach us? Well, it teaches us that genuine faith, genuine repentance is regarded by God instead of sin. That takes some explanation. What I mean here, of course, is not that God in his omniscience puts aside his knowledge, as it were, of sin itself. But as he deals with men in the, according to the bar of heaven, God takes note of this. When a soul genuinely repents, has his faith genuinely lodged in the promises of the gospel, it is that which he notes. 
notwithstanding how much sin he might find otherwise. I want you to notice there are several aspects to this. I want you to notice, first of all, the language that's used here. He says what he recognizes, what the Lord fixes upon, what he sees in this way is that they turn from their evil way. Now, friend, all that has gone before in Jonah 3 has shown us how deloriously Nineveh has mourned its sin. Sackcloth and ashes, not just for men, but for the beasts. And what is it that God takes note of? Not those extrinsic signs of repentance. Not those signs that a hypocrite might perform. What he takes note of is a genuine change. He takes note of a real turning from evil. Friend, that teaches us so much, doesn't it? Jehovah is a God who is not placated by formalities. He is a God who looks for a genuine change in souls. Genuine repentance. Genuine faith. Not a formalized and cold religion is for Jehovah something acceptable. And I've read this text to you so many times, but but you're supposed to contrast what you see in Jonah 3 with what you had going on in Jonah's day in his own land. You remember the Israelites cried. when you Well, the Lord says, rather, as Israel cried, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those 70 years, did ye at all fast unto me? They fasted. They clothed themselves in sackcloth, sat in ashes, and yet God says, you didn't do any of that to, to me. None of it was really, really repentance. How different is the kind of thing that we find in our text? No, God is interested in a real change in the heart. A change that is genuinely fructifying. A change that really produces fruit meat for repentance. But secondly, friend, I want you to also notice here, as you look at this text, the repentance that you see here, the, the turning away from their sin, that is not a meritorious thing that Nineveh has performed. They have not merited salvation with God. How do we know this? Well, friend, I just direct your attention back to the comments we made at verse 9. That is a text that tells us Nineveh, first of all, is not bargaining with God as though she could merit something, purchase something from Jehovah. No, this is a city that is very cognizant, one, of God's sovereignty. But two, that even under Jonah's austere preaching, there is a token of mercy to be found. And Nineveh has lodged itself and its hopes on that mercy. Not her works, not her tears, not her lamenting, not even, if you like, her works of new obedience. Just the Lord's mercy. This is an instrumental cause, not a meritorious one. But friend, I want you to notice too, our aim in this text is, of course, to see the text as we ought to, as best we can. And so allow me to draw an analogy. Let me take you to the book of Acts just for a second. Here Peter preaches, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, beloved, I read that text to you, and immediately it doesn't necessarily hit us that there is some similarity. Let me only remind you, though, as you look at Acts 2 and as you hear Peter preach, how emphatic should we take those words? Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified. Just weeks, just weeks after the Lord of glory was crucified between two thieves, just weeks after Israel decried any king but Caesar, the preaching of the gospel goes to this city certainly laden with the most aggravated sins any city has ever had, to be guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. This is Jerusalem, a city, one of the greatest moments, perhaps the greatest city in terms of sin. And here Peter says this, repent and be baptized. Why? For then... For the remission of sins. Beloved, as you look at Jerusalem and as you look at Nineveh, you see that there is an analogy then, isn't there? The Lord God calls one great city, great in iniquity, to repent, to have their sins remitted, pardon with God really applied. And he says the same to the very city that crucified his son. Well, as you look at the text, then what does this teach us? Well, it shows us so very plainly, doesn't it? That our God is a God who, when he sees genuine faith, genuine repentance, is willing even to pardon those who crucified his own son. Willing even to pardon a Nineveh, laden with great iniquity, a, a city constituted in sin. Our God is so gracious that he pardons even those depths when he sees such repentance and such faith. But that brings us then to the intention, our second point, the intention of God's mercy. And for that, I direct your attention to that phrase that we have in what follows. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. Now, I've already said to you how we're supposed to understand that word repent. It's an, to use the theological term, it's an anthropopathism. It's, a, it's accommodated language uh, predicating something of deity that really is only predicated of humanity properly. This kind of change, this kind of mutability. And, and we understand, first of all, friend, that there is no real change in our unchangeable, immutable God. In fact, you can't even say in this text that God has changed the message of Jonah. We've said this already time and again, but, but even in Jonah's preaching... There was tacit, implicitly given to Nineveh the hope that if they would repent, if they would really turn to God, mercy would be tendered to them, and the judgment that was promised to them would be averted. It's the very same thing you have in Jeremiah 18. And and this really is supposed to explain to us how we're supposed to interpret such texts. Jeremiah 18 reads, At what instant, says the Lord, I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, 
I will repent of the evil that I sought to do unto them. It's the very self-same thing that Nineveh experiences. There was a tacit condition, and by faith, a spirit-wrought faith, she discerns as much. And so, friend, there was no alteration to the message. This very condition was embedded in it. But the second thing, too, of course, to remember is that the decrees of God are immutable. There is no change in the one and the eternal decree of God. And for that, I'll just remind you of the text that I cited before. They are issued forth from a God who is unchangeable. A God in whom there is no shadow of turning, no variableness whatsoever. And so as we look at Jonah 3 and the 10th verse, we need to remember Jonah's message was not contradicted, and neither were the, the eternal decrees altered. Now I think perhaps this is where we stop. But it would be wrong for us to do so. There's a danger, friend, I would say, to say both too little and too much when we come to this text. We understand that this kind of repentance that's in view here is accommodated language, helping us understand what takes place in providence. But allow me to read to you just a number of our forebears who thought through this. One writes, Repentance in God is only a change of his outward conduct according to his infallible foresight and immutable will. I want you to notice how he goes on. And we may also understand those expressions to signify that if God were capable of our passions, he would discover himself in such cases as we do. So would God have joy at the obedience of men and grief at the unworthy carriage of men and repent of his kindness when men abuse it and repent of his punishment when men reform under his rod. Were the majesty of his nature capable of such affections? You see, our God is a God who is not subject to passions, as our confession tells us. But as we look at this language that's used here, as Charnock writes, he says the way the Lord is communicating to himself is, if he were capable in his majesty of such affections, in this occasion, this is what we would see. No, our God is a God of settled disposition, perfect, unchanging, and undivided. But, oh, friend, mark that it's a settled disposition that we have in view here. Another one of our forebears writes thus, If you mean by affections in God, sudden, vehement perturbations, such as we see usually in men rising and ceasing as occasion and objects are offered, then there are no affections in God, for there is nothing in him at any time that is not always in him, and that hath not been in him from all eternity. But if we mean by affections, constant, continual, yea, eternal acts, motions, and in inclinations of his will, not stirred up by a sudden like a tempest, by this or that particular object, but settled and permanent, arising of the diverse nature of the things and agreeable thereunto, in this sense we may say truly, that there are affections in God, for he doth truly love and embrace good, and likewise hate and abhor whatsoever is evil. Friend, we could have left the tenth verse with a simple phrase, and God spared Nineveh. But instead, the inspired penman sets before us this picture, if you will, of God's inclination 
a clear picture of God's disposition. And what does that teach us? The Lord is freely disposed to deal mercifully with the penitent. No, there is no change in our God. But his settled, inflexible disposition, yes, free according to the decree, is nevertheless one of mercy to those who are genuinely penitent. This is what the text holds out to us very clearly. This is the disposition of our God. I want you to notice the testimony of this towards from Scripture itself. Take Elihu, the one who went to Job as the Lord's forerunner. Elihu says, God looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with men, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened in the land of the living. Note what Elihu says. This is God's settled, settled position and disposition with regard to the penitent. He is a God who will show mercy. And so much so that Elihu takes this both as a maxim, something that can be applied almost universally. No, not even almost universally. He applies it to Job universally. This is something Job may expect. If he really turns to the Lord, this is the outcome. Because this is the Lord's settled disposition. His settled posture toward the penitent. And friend, it's also a testimony, isn't it? Because Elihu is saying this is what history has borne forth. History has recorded. This is how God deals in a very settled way with those who approach him aright. Penitently. Believingly. A friend, that would be enough for us to praise our God. That he would be so inclined to sinners who were undone in Adam. Who continued to rebel in spite of so much goodness shown. But we can go a step further. I want you to notice, friend, that this kind of language, the language of disposition, has been understood in ways that I think seldom we discuss today. To understand this, we have to go to the Incarnation. Hebrews 4.15, words we all know well. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Christ, in his human nature, is possessed of a divine and a human will. This, of course, was settled long ago, but but the idea is is that he possesses a human will, human affections. In even our risen and ascended Christ, are still present. That's really the argument of the writer to the Hebrews. Christ remains yet one who is possessed of human feeling, human affection. Yes, his affection is untainted with sin and is in perfect conformity with the will of the Father, but it is man nonetheless. How do we understand this? Writes one of our forebears, that happy union of both natures. In it, the language of the Old Testament uttered only in a figure becomes verified and fulfilled in truth of it. As in all other things, the shadow of it were fulfilled in Christ. Goodwin there is speaking about this anthropomorphic language. The Lord having bowels of compassion. The Lord having great delight singing over his people. The Lord having an earnest desire. Described for us in the most passionate of terms for sinners to take hold of, to take hold of mercy. Goodwin says that was not capable 
of itself in the divine nature, but it is certainly capable in our Christ as he is God-man. He is possessed of the divine nature of that settled disposition, that immutable disposition that we read of in our text, but also as a man. He is genuinely possessed of that earnestness, that very desire that you have communicated to us as God-man, that these penitents might receive mercy. Friend, understanding that makes texts like Luke 15 shine, don't they? Christ says, the shepherd who's found his lost sheep, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Note the text. Rejoice with me, cries the shepherd. It implies that he himself is rejoicing. No, it necessitates that he is rejoicing. He is in earnest when he takes hold of his sheep. And friends, certainly that was communicated of God in the Old Testament. Language of accommodation. But when we think of the incarnation of a risen and ascended and a living Christ now, friend, we understand that our perfect God-man really does rejoice over those who repent as Nineveh did, is really moved in his heart toward them. Oh, beloved. Does that not add so much to that question? As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Oh, it was God omnipotent and immutable that spoke it. But in the preaching of the gospel, it is also a God-man who cries that sinners would take hold of him. Why will ye die? But thirdly and finally, friend, we find that this mercy is one of intervention. Not only is there a settled disposition, but God immutably, irresistibly brings that mercy to them. He did it not, says the text. Friend, that would be superfluous except for the fact that that just shows us that God's intention, his disposition toward penitent sinners to receive mercy is immutably fulfilled. True penitents are certain to receive mercy. It's the argument of Hebrews 6. God has sworn by himself because he could swear by no greater. If they will take hold of the gospel as it is offered to them, they will certainly know his grace. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And he did it not. It was a fulfillment of every promise, albeit implied in Jonah's preaching. But it is in every promise in the book of God that those who really take hold of grace will find it, most certainly. Our God's merciful dispositions are really actualized as God fulfills his covenant promises. As we close, friend, I'll just say to you that this is no no common text. Perhaps it would be better for me to say this is no text that we should treat as though it were a common thing. The inspired penman labors to set before us so many incentives to repent. 
a God who is really disposed to show mercy to sinners who take hold of grace as is tendered to them. And is that not every incentive to lay hold of the author? And that's the very thing that Israel needed to hear. She would feign repentance. She would complain that she still was under the rod, but she would not really seek that which Nineveh found. She would not come to a God who was really disposed to be reconciled to all who come to him by grace and through faith. It's a powerful invitation to repent. In fact, friend, as you meditate on it, it's perhaps one of the warmest invitations given to us in the book of God to repent. It's a striking, striking text. But for ourselves as we close, beloved, how many ways, especially thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, how many ways can the penitent say that God is disposed to show mercy to you? Does that not lead us to want to cry for greater repentance? Is this not something that would motivate us to cast off sin as we see it? To know that our God is, in his settled way, disposed to show mercy to such. And then to know that we have a Christ who even as a man, sympathetic as he is, purely and in accord with the will of his Father, cries, come unto me. Beloved, this is something that we should certainly see even in our text this evening. And may the Lord apply it to us in these ways. Amen.